but I don't think that it's something that's just going to be won in the courtrooms. I think it has to be won in the American consciences. We have to understand why these things matter. Yes, it's about the law, but in some ways we're stemming a tide, raising our children at the dinner tables, at the kitchen tables on why these things matter. I think it's critical or we will lose it um, altogether. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Here we are having a very busy year. I'm sure it's busy for you, regardless of what you do. It's certainly busy for us at the Heritage Foundation because not only is our main lane of public policy busy and fraught with some challenges, but also a lot of opportunities, we're also really busy, along with some other organizations, revitalizing civil institutions. It's sort of the, the long game. You've heard me talk about this on, on this show before. But we also pay attention to and participate in some of the, the legal warfare, if you will. And our guest this week, our friend Kristen Wagner, the CEO and General Counsel of Alliance Defending Freedom, is one of the most important figures in doing that kind of work. The organization she leads certainly is one of the most important. And you're going to enjoy this conversation. So, Kristen, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. How long have you been in this post? 14 months now. Yeah, I was, just, I was going to guess a year <laughs> and a half. I'm, I remember I the day vividly. Yeah, it's, it's gone very quickly, October of last year. So. You're a longtime friend of Heritage, you personally and ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom. And so when you were named to the post, a lot of us called you right away and, and wish you congratulations. We still, of course, pass those along. But I thought what we would do today is explain for our audience, just in case, in the off chance they've not heard about ADF, the work that y'all do, some of your your most fulfilling cases that you have have worked on as an attorney, and also the future. Uh, we 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 live at a time when not only as as there is with every Supreme Court term, really important cases before the court now, but at a in a period when especially the radical left is trying to undermine the, the very integrity of the court. And so I wanted to, to get into all of that with you today with the time we have. But as is custom on this show, before we do all of that, I'm curious how it is that Kristen Wagner not just became CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, but came to find herself arguing really important cases in front of the Supreme Court. Tell us your story. Well, I wish I knew exactly how that happened. <laughs> a little um, bit of Holy Spirit, right? It, it, absolutely. It's the Lord. And I, I tell students in our Blackstone program that you can chart your course and it's going to involve a lot of hard work, but ultimately it's God that opens those doors and calls us to those moments and seasons. And we just need to say yes. So that's really what it was for me in terms of the CEO role. I never imagined it and frankly, didn't look for it. Um, I love being a lawyer and practicing law in court. In terms of how I started, when I was a young girl, I had a dad that was committed to ensuring that I knew I had a purpose, and he felt that there was a vocational call on my life and encouraged me to figure out what that was. Um, and so we were a religious family, and he encouraged me to pray about it. And I was a normal kid that did normal things. Um, but at the same time, God used that in my life to, I think, help me stay on a path where I was able to go to college, have law school as a goal. And from about age 12, I knew I wanted to defend religious freedom and Christian schools. Um, and it didn't play out the way that I thought it would. There were a lot of difficult moments um, and a lot of hard work that went into it. But at each step, God provided and opened those doors. Um, so I spent about 17 years in private practice before joining ADF in 2013. So would you say that your, it sounds like your dad's uh, approach to, to giving you some advice, which was 
for, for you to see not just a profession, but a vocation, a calling has served you well, not just in the opportunities that have come up, like becoming CEO of your great institution, but also what everyone has in their in their career, whatever their professional pursuit is, the challenges. Yes, absolutely. And we know that those challenges produce character, hopefully, um, as we work through them. They refine how we think about things. It also deepens our faith um, and just builds us into who we're supposed to be. And so that was certainly my experience as well. I mean, I thought that I would always go straight from law school into a public interest firm. And that's just not the path that opened for me. Um, it was private practice. And yeah, I can look back now and I can see that that private practice experience actually prepared me better for this CEO and president position than if I had just come in to public interest right away, I think. So we'll get into some of those cases that were formative for you and, and, and many of them important for all of us as Americans. But I'm curious about, you're going through this, this uh, professional journey you joined Alliance Defending Freedom and, and what it was and is about Alliance Defending Freedom, especially for people who may be less familiar with it uh, than, than others, that was so appealing. First and foremost, it was just the comprehensive strategy that they had. Um, you know, for litigators, everything looks like a lawsuit, right? You, that's I've that's the that. answer to everything. It's filing a case. But I think as you practice in the law, one of the things that you learn is that those lawsuits never really make people whole completely. And that um, you also need to convince judges more and more that what they're doing is right and not just necessarily in accord with the law. And so... At ADF, we are about transforming the legal culture as well, the law and the legal culture. So there are training programs for attorneys that are in practice that want to do this work, but maybe they don't know how or they can't afford to do it. So we have a grants program. That's how I got involved with ADF, was um, litigating cases in my home state of Washington, which there were plenty of, <laughs> with ADF, and they would provide grants to help me do that. Um, we also at ADF have the Blackstone program, which is about training students who are in law school how to think about the law, how to practice and be consistent in in terms of your mor morality, your ethics, um, what the natural law is, all of those things. And then what I also appreciated about them is that they did hard things. Um, we're a ministry, which is a little different than what most people think of, especially since we're the largest public interest group on the conservative side. But at, at heart, our mission is to ensure that everyone has the right to speak and live the truth. And we believe that the truth is consistent with what the scripture has to say, and that promotes human flourishing. So I think that that ministry side of things um, gave me the confidence to know that we would do what was right, playing the long game, um, and allowed us to step out on different issues when others didn't. What was the first significant case that you argued for ADF that for, for you personally was formative where it, it helps you realize, oh, my, my, my dad's um, approach, his encouragement to me to see this as a vocation, you realized, ah, this was it. Well, I think the first case was actually in private practice where I, I just felt that there was a moment where I just kind of knew that it was for it was for this reason. Um, there were two moments and they were very close together. One was called the Stormans case, which eventually went up to the Supreme Court. And ADF helped fund that case while I was in private practice. And it was a fourth generation family owned pharmacy in Washington state had passed a regulation at the Board of Pharmacy level at the impetus of Planned Parenthood to force pharmacists and pharmacy owners to dispense abortive patient drugs. A even though this particular pharmacy owned by the Stormans family in Olympia, they would refer uh, 
patients that would come in to nearby pharmacies. There were like 33 within five miles that all stocked the drug, but that was not good enough in Washington. They had to compel you to coerce your, you know, coerce your conscience. And so having, that was the first time that I was able to stand before a court and talk about the importance of conscience, talk about what life was. And it just, it was a defining moment for me. And I think the second one was a little different, but it was actually a custody trial that I did um, where, um, just being able to play a role as an advocate in helping a young boy come into a safe situation when he wasn't in a safe situation and knowing that his parents and grandparents who would be raising him were believers and um, just getting to see that journey play out. That was also a defining moment. So tell us about some ADF cases in the last years that are really emblematic of the work that all of you do. Oh, sure. Well, you have I a think, lot to choose from, I will say. <laughs> it's, it's been... You know, sometimes I think if I had known when I was thinking of coming to ADF what it would be like, I don't know if I would have had the courage to do it because there have been wonderful successes. I mean, we've had 15 Supreme Court wins in 12 years. So 11 of those or 14 of those have been while I've been here. Um, but there's just so much blood, sweat and tears that not only go into those, but as you've already hinted at, the... Um, the left's opposition effort has escalated and gone so far beyond, you know, the tactics that you're taught in law school, which is you debate and you debate in a civil way and you respect each other and you shake hands when you leave the room. Um, I, I mean, I've been escorted to police cars. I've been spit at. I've been, you know, you name it. We just don't play by those civil rules anymore. So that has been a challenge. I think in terms of the cases, um, most people... I think would have heard of Masterpiece Cake Shop is one case. Um, that was the first case I argued at the Supreme Court, and um, that was very rewarding. We've also had um, the Hobby Lobby Conestoga Woods cases. Conestoga Woods section was ours. Um, we've had most recently the 303 Creative case, um, and then also we were on the legal team, Mississippi's legal team in Dobbs overturning Roe. So those are some of the highlights. Tr tremendous victories there. And I guess, you know, having a lot of friends who are who are attorneys like you are, you, you develop this bond with with your client. Right. And mm -hmm. and in all of those cases, you can think about clients, some of them more um, forward facing, if you will, than others. But um, it isn't just about the case isn't just about them, although ostensibly, obviously it is. It's about the most precious of, of our rights on that point. What's what's at stake right now in terms of not just the First Amendment, but sort of what you hinted at earlier, just the American way of recognizing that we are the most pluralistic society in the history of mankind. And, and as if that wouldn't be enough of a challenge for us to somehow build a republic with that reality, we also make these really noble proclamations. And I, I don't say, I say that with no sarcasm, and they are noble. Noble proclamations about everyone being equal and for example, equal opportunity to the finest education in the history of the world. We do that in spite of being a republic with all these 50 states and also in spite of all of our pluralism. All of that to say, keeping America together takes some work. It requires us to be magnanimous. And, and there, there seem to be, especially from the radical left, maybe it's just a few really vocal voices who are trying to tear that down. The legal structure at large, but in particular, the Supreme Court. What do you make of that? What are, what are the, what's, what's at stake as people are really trying to undermine the integrity of our legal system? 
I would say two things come to mind. I, I don't want to overstate it, but I don't think I am. I think truth is at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the cases that we're litigating, there are such common sense principles that are rooted in truth. Like, what does it mean to be male and female? No one would have thought, I think, 20 years ago that we would be standing in court having to argue that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, or that a parent has the right to know when their child is confused about that, um, or to even be able to help when the state wants to take over. I mean, these are the kinds of arguments we're having that just are mind-blowing to me. Um, So truth is at stake, I think, more so than at any other time in at least our generation. And the second thing that I think is at stake is the rule of law. Um, And I I don't know what you have if you don't have the rule of law at that point. So we can look around the world and see what that produces. And largely, I think that begins to crumble through censorship. And I think from a worldwide perspective, which we have an international component, you know, we're seeing the trends across the globe in terms of censorship rising. And we're seeing that authoritarianism trend um, here in the United States, too. And so I, th- I think those are the things that I see. And they're tearing down the rule of law by trying to delegitimize the court and its decisions and to go after its advocates. Yeah, the, the advocates, some of the justices themselves. Do you do you anticipate that we will see a, a repeat either this coming summer when the Supreme Court is is releasing most of its decisions or in subsequent summers that we did last year or, or this last summer as it relates to the Dobbs decision, because as as people listening or watching this watching this conversation will remember, there were multiple members of the Supreme Court whose whose lives apparently were in jeopardy if you take threats at face value. Will we see more of that or have we turned the corner around or, or on that as it relates to the the safety and integrity of the court? I don't know. I, I hmm. really don't know. I was looking for some hopefulness. They say, you know, you're supposed to be able to say when you don't know. Um, Fair. My, my hope is that it has so exposed, you know, the, the absence of virtue, the absence of a rule of law, that more and more Americans are going to say that that's enough um, and that we will come together when we have different viewpoints under the premise that the rule of law matters, that our institutions matter, that we can't have a a government that is built on self-government and a civil society without those mediating institutions. So um, as well as just ensuring that our different government branches stay in their lanes and the Supreme Court's lane is pretty important. Um, So I'm hoping, but um, I will say that the types of threats that we've seen, even in the 303 creative decision that um, the Supreme Court rolled in June, and it was a free speech case. And the free speech case was built around a website designer who didn't want to have to express messages that violated her convictions. Very easy principle to affirm, except for this cultural moment. And the type of death threats that we saw, the the type of um, hacking, that are, just the tremendous assault on even the clients in the cases now are really unprecedented from what we've seen in prior years. And it, it seems to be, and I mean this in, in a general sense, we don't have to get into s- specific political leaders, a, a vacuum of leadership as it relates to the moral authority that any leader have, whether it's the president or it's some other position to say, knock it off. This this is not who we are as a people. And that's still a true statement because the majority of Americans find it abhorrent that this was going on at the Supreme Court. I mean, even, even some Americans who disagreed with the Dobbs decision. And, and it seems that both on the left and the right politically, in the center, that we need to be cultivating a generation of leaders who can can disagree vociferously. We're not talking about being squishy. You lead ADF, I lead Heritage. We're not advocating for squishy. 
what we're advocating for is the confidence of our positions that we're going to go give it the best shot in your case in the courtroom in our case most of all in, in congress or state capitals but if we lose we're going to accept that and then in a figurative way live to fight another day but not not take it to the streets and undermine the whole system i i don't see any way around this other than greater virtue among the citizenry which de tocqueville will remind us of but also leaders at every level and on both sides saying knock it off this is enough Absolutely. And I think we still don't know if both sides will do that. Um, sometimes I've even, you know, been concerned about what the conservative side sure. is I've said, is that said often. and done. Um, you know, we talk about principle, but what really matters is when the rubber meets the road. And um, so I'd agree with you there. It's a virtue. It's also, I think the educational system is something that we have to do more about because we're raising the next generation to believe that power is all that matters and that the whole foundation is built on it. And if we don't take back um, that educational system, I think that there's rougher ground that we still have to till. And some of that rougher ground is, uh, is, is already something that people in other countries are experiencing. Y'all are involved with this uh, truly absurd case with um, an elected official in Finland. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. So Paivi Rasanen is a minister of parliament in Finland. She's been there for about 30 years, very popular. She was the minister of interior um, for many years in the government. She is an amazing woman. She's a physician, a grandmother, and also a pastor's wife. And uh, when her denomination said that they were going to be sponsoring a pride event, she tweeted out a Bible verse and a question, essentially a, a suggestion that this probably didn't align with scripture. And in response, the Finnish prosecutors did a 20-year um, look back investigation period to try to dredge up anything they could um, in her history and public statements and then charged her with three, three hate crimes, including under the penal code for war crimes and crimes against humanity, um, simply for those statements. And she's been been prosecuted for the last four years as a result, which, you know, they say that part of the punishment is the process itself. We won at the trial court. And then just recently, we won at the Court of Appeals. Because in other countries, unlike the United States, in a criminal trial, that can be appealed even if you're found innocent. And so the Finnish authorities continue to appeal. So we're waiting to see if they take it to Finland's highest court. But I do think that it highlights the type of censorship that we're seeing that's on the rise. I mean, there, we have uh, a case right now where two congressmen, one former, one current, in Mexico tweeted out that um, Mexico's Congress is, there are certain seats that are reserved just for women in the Congress. And they simply tweeted out that they believed it was wrong for men who are dressing as women or identifying as women to take those women's seats. And they were convicted of gender-based political violence. And the government's trying to force them to do an apology. Um, and we have a number of other cases as well, including in the UK right now. So it's a critical issue around the world. But I think for your audience here in the United States, we need to remember that the United States is the last Western country in the world to resist these types of laws. So it's up to us. It is. And, and I know you well enough to know you're the last person in this country to overstate anything. It's a, one of your um, many great attributes. And so I've been wanting to ask you this question. How close is the United States to going down that path that you explained uh, about Mexico and the UK and Finland? I know we're not there yet, but I know members of the audience well enough that some of them are wondering, you know, is that a year, five years? Will we see this crop up? You know, do we need to build the defenses even more strongly now? 
I do think we need to build the defenses more strongly, but I don't think that it's something that's just going to be one in the courtrooms. I think it has to be one in the American consciences. We have to understand why these things matter. It is, yes, it's about the law, but in some ways we're stemming, we're stemming a tide. Um, buying time, um, again, as we go back to raising our children at the dinner tables, at the kitchen tables on why these things matter, I think it's critical or we will lose it um, altogether. And the totalitarian impulse will be here and we will feel it. Um, it's another reason why we are working so hard to defeat the gender identity ideology. And I know Heritage is very involved in that with us as well. Um, and that we need to ensure that parental rights are treated as fundamental rights in this moment. It isn't just about the law. It isn't just about public policy. Most of all, it's about how we all live our lives, right? It, I'm glad to hear you say that, not just because it's true, but because just a little while ago, I was having lunch with three new members of, of the Heritage staff, literally their first day today, just a custom that I've started and, and visiting with them. And they were they're asking the best questions. So there's great hope for the future. You have great colleagues at ADF, I do at Heritage. And, and their question was, uh, best question of the lunch was, Kevin, um, what is it that is Heritage's rationale about revitalizing America? And basically what they were getting at was, is it our policy work in Congress? It is, is it our policy work in states? What we do on the 501c4 side, a little bit of legal scholarship work that we do, which I know you appreciate. And I said, all of those things are important. They're all part of the, the recipe. But the most important thing we do, directly and indirectly, is revitalize the, the, the civic life of Americans with institutions, hopefully by our witness, our comportment, and how we go about our work, what we're doing in our, our personal lives and our communities, helping to rebuild this country. Because in other words, all the work that you do in the courtroom, all the work we do in the policy space will amount to very little if in fact we don't get America's kind of diseased culture and society revitalized. And I don't mean that in any judgmental way, it's, it's, it's just a summary about this country really kind of hanging in the lurch. And, and it's really incumbent upon each of us to, to address that. All of that to, to lead to this question, and that is what the Supreme Court decides is still very important, even though that's all <laughs> true. And so tell us yes. about this, this term at the Supreme Court, what we might expect. Well, um, it's a jam-packed term for sure. Uh, right now we have some of the cases that the court has accepted involve uh, what kind of deference that the courts should continue to give to administrative agencies, which that will impact all kinds of areas of law right now because it's a case called Chevron um, or the Chevron Doctrine, where um, essentially the courts have said, we're going to give a lot of deference to agencies to interpret the law. And that hasn't turned out well, nor do I think it's constitutional. So so the court will be grappling with that. That will be important for many areas. Another couple of cases they have involve social media, and those are sticky cases as well. Um, one set of cases is called Net Choice, and then there's another set that deals with uh, social media accounts by public officials. So th those are going to be very thorny issues and complicated ones um, that deal with free speech type issues there. Uh, in terms of petitions that the court's considering, uh, we have a petition called Tingley, which uh, we believe is critical in terms of parental rights, as well as in free speech, where Brian Tingley is a licensed counselor and Washington has passed a law that says he cannot help students, help uh, children who come to him who are confused about their bodies, and he can't help them to learn to live in alignment with the, their bodies. Even though science tells us when kids get that kind of counseling, the vast majority live at peace with their bodies for the rest of their lives. But Washington has banned that, censored that counseling, even 
when the parent is seeking it. And there are actually 100 jurisdictions, over 100, that have those laws. That's astonishing. It's astonishing. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that position with my own children and thinking you're, you're in a moment where you know your child needs critical help and the state is stopping you from getting that help that you know you need. It would just... I can't imagine. It's terrifying. Um, another case that the court will be considering is um, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, which involves chemical abortion drugs. And again, it's sort of like the Chevron doctrine or the administrative. There are two components to that case. One is certainly about the safety or lack of it for chemical abortion drugs. But the second is just playing by the rules of the game and what agencies have the power to do and not do. And the Biden administration, after the Dobbs decision, instituted mail order abortion. And they did it in an unconstitutional way and in a way that violated the Administrative Procedures Act. So the court will be considering whether to hear that case. Well, thanks for uh, that rundown. Thanks for all the work that you and your colleagues at Alliance Defending Freedom do. I'll ask you one final question. And it's a question I ask almost all of our guests. I also know you to be very hopeful. Having said that, you and your colleagues are also very sober-minded when it comes to the challenges facing America. You're realistic. And so in spite of those challenges, when you woke up this morning, why did you wake up hopeful about the American future? I woke up hopeful because I, I do believe in truth and that truth is on our side. And I do believe truth will prevail through courageous people. And as a person of faith, I also know that God does amazing things through all kinds of people, whether they know it or not. So I trust him. And I think that this has been an amazing experiment in freedom and the principles that we are living by will prevail. Um, I, I just think it will. And even if it doesn't, I believe we're called to faithfulness in these moments. And that gives me hope. We're all instruments. Yep. Whether we want to accept that or not, right? Yes. Kristen Wagner, thanks for your leadership. Thanks for your optimism. And thanks for everything that you and your colleagues at Alliance Defending Freedom do for us. Well, thank you. We are grateful for Heritage's partnership as well. Thanks. I told you you would enjoy that conversation. There's no way you can, you can listen to Kristen's rundown of their work, her assessment of why we're going to win without being more optimistic than you were than when we started. So thanks for being part of the audience today. We, of course, are grateful for all that you're doing to help revitalize this country. Remember, times might be a little challenging, but we are going to prevail. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.